Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Dan Shipper. He's the CEO and co-founder of Every, a daily newsletter on business, AI, and personal development. You can find it at every.to. It's actually pretty cool. Believe it or not, good old tight-fisted rut actually plunked down and subscribed to the damn thing. It is worth the subscription, and it's not cheap. I'll call out one particularly interesting recent article, not by Dan, by the way, but by another author. It's called Good Cogs and Their Tools. It's quite short, but it is kind of a surprisingly deep article that will make you think a fair bit and will explain a bit about one's reactions to one's co-workers over the years. <laughs> I recommend that article. Before he helped start Every, he was a CEO and co-founder of Firefly, an enterprise software company that he sold to Pegasystems. He does write a column at Every called Chain of Thought, where he covers AI, tools for thought, and the psychology of work. You can find out more about Dan and his various doings at danshipper.com. I did a little, as I, as I always do, a little internet sleuthing about my guests. And uh, one of the things I found that was quite interesting about Dan was that this enterprise software company that he uh, started and built, guess what? He started, built it, and sold it while still an undergraduate. <laughs> Is that actually true? That is true. I uh, I actually went from my I flew from my college graduation to Boston to finish signing the deal with Pega. So it was a, it was a good get graduation gift. Yeah, that's cool. I like that actually. And truthfully, I like the <laughs> fact that you sucked it up and graduated and didn't pull a Zuckerberg or something. Right? <laughs> uh, though it kind of worked out okay for him, but I think it may also explain a little bit about his somewhat aberrant personality. <laughs> oh well. Anyway, I find I found Dan out on the wilds of Twitter when I I noticed a tweet he did about an application of GPT three. I go, hmm less lame than usual. So I went and went to his Twitter handle, which what is your Twitter handle, by the way? My Twitter handle is at Dan Shipper. It's pretty easy. At Dan Shipper. That's easy enough. And I saw that he'd written some other things. So I looked at those and they were also pretty cool. And what I liked about them, there were articles about how to use GPT-3 and related technologies at the personal or very teeny business scale. And they were straightforward. They were practical. They, you know, they weren't full of, you know, oh my God, the world is ending or, oh, this is all bullshit. There's nothing here. It lies all the time, et cetera. You know, and of course the world probably is ending. And yes, uh, GPT-3 does lie all the time, but nonetheless, <laughs> it's actually good for a lot of stuff. And it's really been interesting to, to 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 look at today while well, I was prepping for this to look read some more of his essays etc and, and you know I really always like this when you see this these practical mundane easy to do applications it's yet another signal to me that this really is something you know this this new wave of generative ai is not just a flash in the pan it's not just a nerd thing there is something here it'll be very very fun to see it unfold so Dan, how did you stumble into thinking about and playing with things like chat GPT and GPT-3? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
How did I how did I stumble into it? Let's see. Well, about about like probably five or six months ago is when it really started for me. You know, I'd been following people on Twitter who had been talking about GPT three for a long time. These sorts of technologies have been around in some form or another for a couple of years. So it's something that I've I've loosely been aware of, but haven't been like really closely involved with uh, until the last like five five or six months or so. And I think the the like starting point for me was. At every, you know, we have this daily newsletter and we also build uh, software products. And my co-founder, Nathan, had been excited about building a Google, a Google Docs competitor. And when he was building that as a side project, we sort of were like, what if we integrated GPT-3 into it, you know, as a way to sort of start to autocomplete your, the writing that you're doing. And the first version of the autocomplete with GPT-3 was like really cool. It was, it was kind of mind-blowing, honestly. Obviously, it gets things wrong. Obviously, it makes mistakes, but it was definitely a wow moment for us. And uh, when we launched it, it just it went wild. People loved it, and it grew really fast. And I think it it became a like moment for me to be like, yeah, this stuff is very cool. It's still it's still really early, but it started to it started to hit me that it it changed a lot of things that I was really interested in. Like I've been quite interested in note-taking, for example, for a really long time. I've been really interested in writing for a really long time. I've been really interested in psychology and therapy and, and, and lots of stuff in the sort of like productivity, personal development type realm. And I think GBT3 and te- technologies like it are going to have massive impacts in all those places. They're not panaceas. They don't solve all the problems, but they really change a lot. And once I got interested in that, I was sort of off to the races building stuff and uh, trying things out. And I think one of the really cool things about this time in technology is you can just spend a weekend building a little project and like have something really cool come out of it. And that's just very fun and exciting. Yeah, it's very, what this reminds me of, I mean, you can't see his picture here, but Dan's a fairly young guy and I'm a fairly old guy, as is well known to my listeners, is the very early days of PCs, right? Mm. You know, you went out and you plunked down your money and you bought a PC in 1979, 1980. And at first it was like, hmm, what is this good for? Yeah, you can, you know, keyboard in a program or play a program in off an audio tape or some horrible thing like that. But very quickly things started coming together. And, you know, every week there would be some, you know, subscribe to newsletters, et cetera, magazines. Mm. There were just practical, cool, good things. I mean, one of the, you know, I I got a bootleg copy of a very, very, very early word processor, for instance. Mm. Holy shit. I still remember buying VisiCalc when they still sold it in the Ziploc (laughs) bag with a dot matrix printer label on it. And mine was serial number 254. I wish it had been two. I wish it had been 255 just because it would have been a cool you know, hexadecimal number, octal number, but 254. And I ended up spending the, you know, literally staying up all night long playing with VisiCalc. Oh my God, which for kids today is kind of the ancient ancestor of Excel. And it had all kinds of weird limits. In fact, I, I spent about two hours building this huge model that I couldn't actually save to my floppy drive because it had a bug in it that if the model was larger than x and there wasn't enough headroom uh-huh. it couldn't page the model out uh, to this but anyway i have this feeling around generative ai one of the first things i felt this strongly about since you know i've been playing around with gp2 gpt3 dolly dolly2 mid journey stable diffusion i even did a, a long chat 
with a guy who is building a text to world metaverse builder. Mm. Uh, you know, talk about that. All right. Here's a, you know, two paragraphs describing my universe. Go build it. Right. That's cool. And of course, as you know, as you acknowledge, and, and and as we all know, these things have all kinds of quirks and limits, and things they do strangely. And you know, I certainly wouldn't use it to control a scalpel to do neurosurgery this month, right? But when you think about things that are actually practical, they're they're kind of cool. So let's start. Uh, well, actually, before we jump into some of these cool examples that you've been working on, first, let's make the distinction for the audience why you almost always talk about GPT three rather than Chat GPT. If you could kind of make that distinction oh, for the audience, yeah, I can. I can totally make the distinction. It, it is actually quite confusing because they sound very similar, and there's there's a lot of overlap. But GPT three is the underlying AI model. So GPT-3 is like a, it's a large language model. It's really good at taking in a text input and generating text outputs. And it, it operates through a transformer architecture, which is a certain kind of machine learning model that's, that's you know, really good for this and is the breakthrough that enables all the stuff that, you're, that people are seeing that, that's really exciting. ChatGPT is a variant of the GPT-3 model that has been trained through reinforcement learning to be very good at conversing. So it's sort of like a, a different flavor of GBT3 that is kind of like an uh, like a friendly extrovert that's, that, yeah, that's good at having conversations. And it's also the name of the product that you use, which is like the, you know, the web interface and the, the place where you can, you know, type, type stuff in and get responses back. So it's both the model and the product, which makes it like very confusing. But that, those are the, that's sort of the basic, basic difference. And most of your work you do with GPT-3, with the actual lower-level accessible tools, I understand it. I do a lot of work with GPT-3, but I also use ChatGPT all the time. I would say the the division between GPT-3 and ChatGPT for me is when I'm building any kind of underlying software that I want to I make software, I use GPT-3. Because GPT-3 has the ability to allow developers to make stuff with it. Anytime I just want to use AI to write or to answer a question or anything like that, I'll use ChatGPT. And that's the that's the distinction. Yeah, I, I use ChatGPT all the time too. It's now I'd probably use it almost as much as I use Google now, which is uh, yeah. kind of crazy. I'm doing all kinds of little weird little things. I actually use it for production. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote a resignation letter for a board of advisors I was on. <laughs> you know, it's the kind of thing you want to be very carefully done. You want to stay in good graces with the people and you want to sound like you have some good reason why you want to resign. But you know, And I just wrote those thoughts down and it wrote yeah. – I would have spent an hour and the letter would not have been as good. Instead, it took me, you know, less than a minute. And I go, damn, actual production use of <laughs> uh, uh, chat GPT. Uh, I'm also working with a, a friend of mine and we're kind of hacking away at seeing how close we can get to writing a full feature length movie script. Mm. It's really cool. You can, you can get it to, okay, we need four characters sort of like this. Give them names and physical descriptions. Right. Okay. Now give them each backstories. Right. <laughs> and uh, okay, now give us 15 plot points for the first half hour of the film. Right. And it does it. And they're not perfect, and it, but you add some humans in the loop. And I, well, I think when we are finally comfortable that chat GPT is stable enough to actually work on it, you know, full time. It's getting very close. We can probably knock this first draft script out in a three day weekend, as opposed to the usual three or four months to get a first draft yeah. out. And that's a yeah. big game changer. You know, who knows? Maybe it gets produced. It'll be it'll be kind of cool. <laughs> 
anyway, let's jump into you know some of your projects here. And I think you know the way to just, I think show how this works and what it's about, and just how kind of clever and cool your work has been at doing interesting and valuable things with these early tools. We'll just go through some of the examples, and then we can talk about right. some of the generalities. One I liked a whole lot was can. GPT-3, explain my past and tell my future. <laughs> tell us about that and a little bit even how you did it. Yeah, totally. So that's a that's the uh, headline of an article I wrote a couple weeks ago. And the basic gist of it is I've been journaling for a long time. Some of those journals are handwritten. Some of them are digital. And I think one of the reasons why people journal is you want to learn about yourself. You want to see how you've changed over time. You want to like uncover patterns in how you think and what you do. And, and you want to find out like, what are the things that really make me happier? What are the things that, that make me like upset, you know? And I think part of the problem with journaling is you really often don't want to go back and look at your old journal entries. Cause it's like, I don't know. It's like, it's, it's just, it's emotionally complicated to go back and look at old journal entries. I'll say that. And, uh, and it's also, it's time consuming. And I, but I, one of the things I, I noticed about GPT-3 is it's very good at summarizing and it's very good at like analyzing pieces of text. And so I, I wondered, or I, I posed this question to myself, like what would happen if I fed all of my journal entries into GPT-3 and then asked it questions? And so that's what I did. I built a little, a little script and I loaded Basically, what it does is it, it loads all of my journal entries that are digital into, into a file. And then I can ask it a question like, when was I the happiest, for example? And what it will do is it will go through and find journal entries of mine that are most likely to answer that question. And then it will feed those journal entries into GPT-3 and um, have GPT-3, based on the entries that it sees, summarize an answer. And it'll come out with a list of bullet points. And it was actually like really interesting some of the stuff it came up with was garbage but a lot of it it like came up with answers that i may not have remembered or or found on my own and yeah i think it's i think it's a really good example of how these types of technologies are sometimes really good at helping us understand ourselves better um, if you use them in the right way yeah, it was kind of very cool. I mean, what I loved is the kind of interesting and easy but not obvious approach of searching your own data and then using it to build a prompt. Unfortunately, you can't yet add your own data to GPT, which will be, I'm sure, coming at some point, if not from OpenAI and Google, from somebody else. And in fact, I know people working on it, but it's a hard problem to get that to work nicely and not too expensively. But you had this idea of having a side database that you query for the best fit and then extract from that and, and form a templated, I imagine, query to send a chat to GPT-3 along with your question is yeah. very, very clever. And some of the, one of the examples you gave was like mind boggling, which is you asked your journal entries, which to then be, you know, plucked, probably trimmed a little bit, used as a template, plugged into GPT-3. What is the author's Myers-Briggs personality type? <laughs> And it gave a, you know, quite subtle answer. Was it right? Are you an INTJ? It was 100% right. I was, I was honestly blown away when I got that result. Yeah. Didn't, I did not expect it to be right. Yep. I'm going to read the, uh, just the subtlety of the answer is really quite interesting. Based on the context information provided, it is difficult to determine the author's Myers-Briggs personality type. However, some nuance, based on the information provided, boundary conditions, you know, goddamn, this is amazing. It is possible to make an educated guess 
knowing about yourself and knowing about the reliability of your answers. These are all very human-seeming things, right? The author appears to be an analytical thinker who is creative and enjoys problem-solving. They appear to be organized and have a strong sense of responsibility. They also appear to be open-minded and willing to explore new ideas based on these characteristics. It is likely that the author is an INTJ, introverted, intuitive, thinking, judging personality type. God damn. I mean, that's when you sort of read that thing through, there's all kinds of levels of kind of human style nuance and balancing and, and confidence ratings, you know, all the things humans do. How the hell does a feed forward network do that? Right? <laughs> it, it really is. It really is quite amazing. That's cool. Then the other one that I thought, again, subtle uh, was you asked it to choose, I think was the subject for a best-selling book for the, you know, that would appear on the New York Times bestseller. And, you know, I don't remember what the answer was, but I remember it was sort of plausible. It, it was pretty good. I, I have the answer right here, which is I asked it if I were to write a New York Times bestselling book about the intersection of my interest in AI, what it would be, what would it be about? And it said, your New York Times bestselling book would be about how to f- use AI to find help people find more meaning in, in their lives. The book would explore how AI can be used to help people better understand their own thoughts and feelings and how to use that understanding to make better decisions and find more fulfillment, which is like, it's high level, but it's it's not a bad guess at what I would write about, given the stuff that I typically write about uh, at every. Yeah, that, that is so cool. And then that's before we move on from this example, you go into a little bit of detail about what GPT index is. Could you just give, give us, you know, 30 or 60 seconds on that? Yeah, I think uh, a way to think about it is, you know, you were, you were talking earlier about, you know, in the early days of computing, running out of memory. I can't remember if it was in VisiCalc or in, in some other program that we're using, but, you know, the, the experience of not being able to fit an entire program or an entire input into the computer that you were trying to run it on was, I think, very common, you know, 40 years ago. That's back again. Basically, uh, these models are really, really powerful, but one of the key limitations is what, what is called a context window, um, which is basically the amount of text that you can feed into a model to basically ask it a question. And right now, that context window is, is about 4,000 tokens for the, uh, the latest OpenAI models, and a token is uh, about three quarters of a word. So... 4,000 4, tokens is a lot. It's, I don't know, it's probably, I think it's like eight pages of text or something like that. So you can definitely fit some amount of, some, some amount of context into there to ask your question. But for example, if you want to summarize, you know, all of your journal entries for the past 10 years, like that's going to be way more than, than 4,000 tokens. It's going to be like yeah, 100,000, 500,000 or something like that. And so the question is, if you want to get the model to analyze text that's much bigger than its context window, how do you do that? And the answer is, you get sort of clever. The, the way that I that 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 it works is you sort of you chop it up into you chop the text up into small bits, and then you find the most relevant bits and give those relevant bits to GPT three and ask it to ask it to do its do its work on those relevant bits. So you try to you try to fit as much relevant information as you can into that little context window. And that's actually it's not that hard to do with like a, a simple script, but there's there's a lot there's some nuances and 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 in general you'd rather not spend a lot of time doing it if you're a programmer. And so there are these libraries that have sprung up like GPT index and like another one called Langchain and actually GPT GPT index uses Langchain on the back end that allow you to like to do a lot of that stuff automatically. So instead of spending a bunch of time 
writing some code that will ingest all of your documents and split them up and then feed the, feed the most relevant chunks to GPT-3, you can just use a couple of lines of code from an open source library like GPT index that will do all that for you. And then you can move on to solving more interesting problems. Yeah, when I read that, I said, okay, guys, I'm going to have to build me a Jim Rutt show chat bot. I'll be able to do it in, the, you know, in an afternoon, probably. I'll have to fill up with the tools for a day or two and then knock it out. It seemed quite easy. Now, of course, retrieving relevant information is a famous natural language processing problem. And you can either do it well or not so well or really well. And there are many different tools for doing that. Some of them unbelievably complicated and computationally intensive. Some other ones that are amazingly simple-minded and there's stuff in between. Do you happen to know how ChatGPT Index chooses the most relevant chunk? Or if you don't know how, how well does it do? Yeah. So the most common way right now that that all, all of these libraries and, and programmers who are we're doing this stuff are choosing relevant pieces of text is using what's called embeddings. And embeddings are a way of turning a string of text into a series of numbers. And you can think of the numbers that come out of the text as being something like longitude and latitude. So they, they allow you to plot the, the text onto like something like a map. And then what you can do is if you have two pieces of text that you've turned into these numbers, you can map the distance between those those two sets of numbers to see how similar or different the pieces of text are. And pieces of text that have similar semantic meanings are gonna just be closer together if you map them. And that's that's how you that's that's how you calculate simul- similarity. The the like nuances of how that works, it depends on how you're doing how you're doing the embeddings. And different companies have different embeddings functions that that do things in different ways, but OpenAI is the one that pretty much everyone is using and it's pretty cheap. It's decent. It definitely misses some stuff, but it's good enough, especially for these, for these early demos to, to get you started. But yeah, I think um, finding, finding relevant text is like one of those sort of never ending problems that you can always, you can always get better at because the, the meaning of the word relevant changes depending on the context. But, but basically people are just doing open AI, open AI embeddings and then doing what's called cosine similarity to, to figure out um, how close one embedded set of words is to another embedded set of set of words. Yeah, that sounds like it's a follow-on from latent semantic strategies where essentially you create a relatively high dimensional space of meaning from a large corpus. And then you can calculate the position in this high dimensional space for any collection of text. And then you can calculate just plain good old Euclidean geometry, the distance yeah. between the between the points. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, I was thinking about this, you know, before I got to that point about that I'm saying, I wonder if we could use like, you know, one of the state of the art text engines like Lucene or something like that to do it. That would be real easy to do because it, it has the capacity to pull up best fits to queries and things of that sort and is, you know, is quite mature technology and is free. That's cool. I don't, I don't totally know. I've, I haven't heard of Lucene and I, I haven't seen people using it in my little corner of the internet, but anything that can find relevant chunks of text would be useful for this. So if, if that kind of a search function is, is good, like it's, it's worth trying. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So I expect this will be an area where tinkerers just like, you know, putting new boards into PCs yeah. in 1980, people will be doing all yeah. kinds of crazy shit, trying this with that, right. Building pipelines totally. essentially. All right. Let's move on to the more, a little bit more general take on the same thing is that you wrote another article called, GPT-3 is the best journal I've ever used. My slow and steady progression to living out the plot of the movie Her. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, so that's a that's another article that I wrote that's that's on the same general idea, which is you know using these tools for to help you help help me understand more about myself. And in this one, instead of using GPT three to analyze old journal entries, I actually just used it as a journaling tool. So I built a little chatbot that can take on different personas. So one persona is I had it take on is um, like having it be Socrates. Another one is having it be like a psychoanalyst. Another one is um, having it be like a, um, a dream interpreter. Another one is having it act sort of like a gratitude journal. And then I can have a conversation with it um, based on the persona that it's, that it's taken on. And it can either help me like work through an issue in my life or just like note down stuff that's going on for me or it can help me bring my attention to something that I want to bring my attention to, like what I'm grateful for, stuff like that. And I actually found it to be like really useful. It's quite good at asking, in my opinion, at asking good questions. It's quite good at being sort of warm and supportive and helpful. But in general, I think the thing that's, that, that's most exciting, exciting about it is it can be whatever you think would be most helpful to you. So it has the capability to take on whatever persona you want it to be. Uh, you can think of these things as as being really good at simulating different parts of language or just different things in the world. And so, you know, for me, having like a dream interpreter simulator is like very cool. For someone else, it might be different and they can use this technology to like build the kind of bot or journal tool that they want. And so, yeah, I've been using that for for a couple months now and I, I, I really, really like it. It's, you know, it's, I it doesn't replace traditional journaling for me and it also doesn't replace like actually just like talking to friends or talking to uh, my partner or talking to a therapist but it's sort of like in this interesting in between where i get some of the things that i would get out of just traditional journaling from it and i also get some of the things that i'd get from like talking to a friend who's just like interested in in me and interested in my problems and interested in my life so i I think it's sort of a, a new and really helpful alternative to some of those things and you create those, as I understand it, by essentially creating a craft, uh, a custom context block, right? And you, and you presumably can play with it until you like it and say, all right, I want it to be Socrates. I want it to be in a style of Socrates, but nice Socrates, right? And, you know, and, and, and maybe more emphasis on this than that. Let's not go down to the, to the, to the uh, metaphor of the cave, please. You know? I, think yeah. you actually, I think you could actually write these. Th- I, know, I know in ChatGPT, you could actually do it like that, and it will, yeah. will actually honor it. You know, I've been playing yeah. around a fair bit with one of the more well-known jailbreaks of ChatGPT called Dan, which is pretty hilarious, where you can yeah, it's funny. make it ignore all of its guidelines and tell you crazy-ass stuff. Someone, I think it was Yudkowsky, suggested it really should have been called Chad GPT, which I thought was pretty <laughs> fun. So is that approximately how you've done it and created these yeah. characters? That's basically how it works. You know, all these things operate by a similar principle, which is you have what's called a prompt. And the prompt is the starting set of characters that you give to the model. And then the model gives you a, what's called a completion. It tries to complete based on based on the prompt. And so the prompt that I'm sort of playing around with are is things like, pretend you're Socrates, and we're having a conversation. You're a Socrates chatbot. We're having a conversation. I want you to be warm and friendly. I don't want you to talk about the metaphor of the cave. But I do want you to, and I don't want you to give me any advice, but I do want you to ask me really good questions about the issue that I'm facing. And then, you know, say, you can start however you want. And then it'll give you a completion that's like, hey, how are you doing? Like, what are you struggling with? Or what are you thinking about in your life right now? And then what you do is as when you type your response, you feed the response back into the model. And so you'll, you still feed it the same thing at the top. Like, you are your Socrates 
I don't want you to talk about the metaphor of the cave. I blah, blah, blah. And then what you do is you say, here's a transcript of our conversation so far. And you feed it the transcript. And then you say, what's your response? I think a thing to remember about these, these models so far is that they don't have any memories. They're stateless. So every time you have a conversation, what you're doing is you're sending a request to the model and you're getting the model's response back, but they don't remember who you are. So you have to feed back in the entire conversation up to the point at which you're, you're talking so it knows what to say. And that gets back into a lot of the same sort of context window limitations that we, we talked about earlier, where if your conversation goes on for a long time, it might forget some stuff, which is a problem. Or if you come back the next day and you're like, you want to talk about the same issue, the model is going to have no idea what you're talking about because it, it hasn't, it doesn't remember every, every request is new. And so you have to build lots of things to get around those types of issues. Now, ChatGPT seems to have taken care of part of that, at least, right? Certainly, when we've been doing the script writing stuff, it remembers all the previous conversation, though I don't know if there's a limit yet. Does it only have the 4,000 tokens, or does it do some kind of intermediate representation? The other cool thing about ChatGPT, they only added it lately, I don't know, a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks ago, is that it saves all your sessions as separate logical containers. So you can go back and then extend. So for something like what you're talking about, it might be a very nice way to just do it in chat GPT, you know, build your Socrates, tune it a little bit if you don't like it. If if you're really pissed off, cut and paste it, start another one. And and then to be able for it to keep that state over weeks, even if you'd like, you know, because it it names or, you know, comes up with a name for each of the chats and you can now, you can now get to them really very looking forward to when you can get API access to that tech underlying technology. That's they keep saying right soon. Now we'll see soon. Coming yeah. soon. Yeah. Coming soon. So ChatGPT has the same exact limitations. It's I think their context window is, is larger. So I believe their context window is, is actually eight thousand tokens instead of four thousand. But it's giving you the experience like it remembers everything by doing the thing that I'm I we, we talked about earlier, where as you type, it will go and slice up the transcript of things that have come previously, find the most relevant bits, and then put that into your into the context window that it sends back to the model. And then come back with the right answer as if it remembers everything, but it, it actually doesn't. It has to do the same sort of embedding of all your messages, cutting them up into chunks, stuffing the relevant messages into the prompt, and then giving you a response. Yeah. And as we both know, that's not what you'd call rocket science, a very basic <laughs> string handling kind of library yeah. to do that job. And so, but it's nice that they do it for you. So if somebody it is wants nice. to. I want to be myself. I should also, I don't know if you've ever run across it, but there's another company that got some really powerful people behind it. In fact, the engineer that created Lambda at Google is the LLM guy, a company called character.ai. And they have hundreds of characters that they've created and that it's easy for you know the, the customers to create. And I've had some hilarious conversations with J.R.R. Tolkien, who you know famously crazed reader of Lord of the Rings, read it 34 times or something crazy like that. You know, one was Socrates, could, couldn't resist, another with Aristotle. And then the last one I did was with Tony Soprano, that was surprisingly <laughs> amazing really was. That's good. And I'm sure it's doing like something that. very similar where it has a static LLM behind it. And then something like, you know, whether it's more like chat GPT index or whether it's more like your canned single profile, I'm not sure, but it's kind of neat. And they're, I don't, I don't even know if they have a revenue business model yet, but it, it's kind of fun to be able to, to talk to these things. And, you know, the talk, the, the Tony Soprano one was uncanny. That was really, <laughs> really, really, really 
interesting how it directed the conversation, asked me questions, and then it discovered my father was from Northern Jersey, and then it went down that whole road. It was, That's funny. It was really, That's really interesting. Yeah, so if you haven't checked it out, it might be fun just to add to your to your collection. I have looked at it. Yeah, I think it. I think it's really cool, and I think you know, I think the future of these things is probably something like that. Having built a lot of these chatbots, I think there's probably room in people's lives for you know, maybe like one or two of them that are sort of general purpose that, that they use all the time. But then I, I think within that, there's room for, for them to take on personas. And, you know, if on a particular day, you don't want the vanilla ChatGPT persona, you want to talk to Tony Soprano about a particular problem. I really think that these companies will make that available. Maybe it's open AI, maybe it's character AI. And then I, I think it becomes something like an app store where developers or content creators can create their own personas and make them available for people to, to use within these these larger chatbot tools. And I think that's actually really exciting. Yeah, it's going to be very cool. And the other thing I'm hoping for, and I've been cheer, you know, cheerleading on, I'm actually helping one guy work on, is we also have to liberate these large language models from the big companies, right? You know, <laughs> God damn, you know, ChatGPT in particular is full of these nanny rails, you know, to a fairly <laughs> well. Oh, I can't see that. That would be mean and bad or blah, blah, blah. Or it'll, you know, do a diatribe against Trump, but not against Biden or vice versa, you know, because <laughs> uh, they've tried to build in all their own prejudices and their own ideologies and all this sort of stuff. And that's garbage, in my opinion, right? I think we really ought to have bare metal ones. And if we want nanny rails, we can add them, right? Before I give them to the 12-year-old to learn about uh, organic chemistry, yep, let's slap the nanny rails on. But if I want to use it for my own purposes, I don't want these thinking nanny rails. You know, it's just like, you know, like stable diffusion's got some, and all these image, image things have, oh, no, we can't, we can't do cartoons based on famous people or whatever well it's, fortunately stable diffusion is easy enough to just download it and you know, and set it out of nanny rail mode and then you get what you want but i think that's going to be an important part of these tools evolving as well is liberating them from the overly sensitive you know judgmental big corporations what do you think about that i think uh, I, I don't know i think we, we may have like slightly differing views on that i i i do think that it's really it would be it'll be really good to make these technologies available for individual developers or people to run them themselves and, and sort of like explore the, the different nooks and crannies of the, of the latent space and get the kind of results that they want. I also think like there are a lot of really complicated issues with letting these sorts of technologies or releasing these sorts of technologies to millions and millions of people all at once and being mindful about like figuring out, yeah, what, what should the guardrail say? What should they be able to say? Or being mindful about like, how should uh, something like stable diffusion deal with copyright or, or like artist rights or all that kind of stuff? I think those are actually really important questions that we don't have good answers to yet because all the technology is really new. But I, I you know, I think that there's 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 room for technology. These types of technologies that are that are broadly available and released to like millions and millions of people by big companies to like yeah have some guardrails. I think that's actually sensible. I also think it's sensible for the underlying technologies to be available for people to build the experiences that they want. And I think we're, we're probably moving to a, to a world where that's the case too. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's that fortunately from my perspective, I believe is unstoppable because the, you know, the recipes aren't that hard. It's now just a matter of cost to build, you know, uh, transformer reinforcement learning based systems. And there's enough interest in it that I suspect we're going to see ones. And my best guess currently, based on people I've been talking to, is that we should probably be able to get open source versions that are 
12 to 18 months behind, you know, the big company models. And right now, that's a big difference. But when you get to GPT-6, running on chat GPT-5 equivalent or 5.5 is not going to rule out very much. So, you know, while the nanny rails, you know, may have market share dominance for a while, it's not entirely clear to me they can possibly have such in the future for people who want, you know, who want to use it in contexts that don't have nanny rails on it. Yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting. I mean, the thing that makes me excited for the open source models is being able to run them locally is a really big deal. I think especially for something like, yeah, journal entries. Right now, I have to upload my journal entries to OpenAI to get to get results. And like, I'm comfortable with that. But like, whether I think that's the good idea, a good idea for like the average person, like, maybe not, honestly. And what I would really prefer is to be able to run this type of model on my own computer or my own phone that saves me a lot of privacy concerns. And it also saves me a lot of cost concerns. This stuff's expensive. The only reason that I can do it is because I run a media company that I can use to fund these experiments. But like, if I was just off on my own trying to like solve my own issues, like they would, it would be probably cost prohibitive for me to do this. But if I can run the models locally, then it's not. So I, I think that's very exciting. Of course, we know that these things are purely Moore's law-driven costs or even faster coming down than that because they're nothing but memory and CPU, right? They're feed-forward network. So whatever the cost is today, assume it'll you know drop in half in 18 yeah. months. And so, That's true. You know, I, I know I get a bill from OpenAI, but truthfully, it's sufficiently small. I don't even worry about it. What's, a, what's a, about cost to get a gen from, a, you know, a, a response from OpenAI's GPT-3 these days? It's like two cents for a thousand tokens. And we talked about sort of the context window limit is 4,000 tokens. And a token is about three quarters of a, of a word. So you can sort of do the math there. But it's, it's still, it's pretty cheap. But like once you're doing, you know, requests where you're summarizing like an entire chapter of a book or, you know, there are, there are lots of reasons why you might want to do like tons and tons and tons of requests. And it starts to add up pretty quickly. Yeah, and that's where it does get cool. And that's where we're going to go next is kind of, I hope somebody figures this out because I could certainly use it. The end of organizing, how GPT-3 <laughs> will turn your notes into an actual second brain. And I'll confess here, I've been using these kinds of rudimentary tools since 1982 or 83. And I'm a kind of very disorderly kind of person, right? You can see you can see my office it looks a bit like a junkyard, right? And I'm, a, I'm like the squirrel that has a thousand nuts hidden all over the forest. And I know where they are most of the time. <laughs> but, you know, I currently use a crazed mix of multiple email addresses that I send stuff to, I forward things to, Evernote, you know, file directories, just a horrible mess. And I've tried various things and none of them have, you know, Obsidian I've tried, uh, Rome I tried for quite a while. I kind of liked Rome, but I eventually yeah. go, no, 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 this isn't quite right. So tell us how this will take us to the promised land of <laughs> having all our shit organized and easily findable and summarizable, etc. using, if not quite, yet. GPT three soon. I yeah. L- l- let me let me take you through it a little bit. I think the the sort of premise of that article is yeah. Large. I think large language models solve a lot of the organization problems, especially for notes that we've been running into for for many 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 years. And I think in order to understand why, you have to understand like why organizing notes is really hard. And the key thing, in my opinion, that makes organizing notes really hard is it's about how, how you organize in general. So things that are easy to organize are things that you know how you're going to use them and when you're going to use them in the future. You can, you can create an organizational system for that pretty easily. Um, a really good example is um, 
No one at, at companies, people at companies don't really argue about how to organize their customer list. They just use a CRM. Everyone just has a CRM. Maybe they have some like, sl- like slight customizations about how it works, but like it's a fairly standard piece of software that everyone uses to, to, to organize their, organize their customers. Other examples abound, but for things that fit into like a really well-defined process and you know where you're going to use them, organizing is already pretty much solved. The problem with notes is that a thing becomes a note when you actually don't really know when you're going to use it in the future, or you might use it for many things. And that means that there's sort of infinitely many ways to organize it. And it, you might want to organize it in one way for one project, and you might want to organize it in a totally different way for another project. And you really want it to come up for you when it's relevant, but you're, you don't know when that is. And that becomes sort of this like intractable problem. And there's like thousands and thousands of systems that like purport to help you with that, that all work in, in various ways, but don't like totally solve it. And I think large language models like really change the equation there because they don't require you, they can A, create like flexible organization systems on the fly that um, change based on your needs. So like you don't actually have to do the organizing yourself. For example, they can create automatic tag hierarchies, they can create folder hierarchies, they can link notes together, all that kind of stuff. So you're not doing the manual work to be like, how does, where does this go? Or where do I put it? It can just put it in all the places that you might need it. And they can create, it can create um, new hierarchies all the time based on what your needs are. I think large language models can also really be good at synthesizing and enriching the notes that you're taking. So as, you know, as you're taking notes in a meeting, it can go in there and like fill in things that you didn't put or find other notes to uh, put together into like a, Hey, I found a, I found a pattern in, in the same way that like my journal entry software did that for like patterns in my journal entries. I think large language models can be sitting on top of your notes and like finding patterns and the things that you're writing about and surfacing them to you all the time, which I think is quite useful. And then I think the big thing that large language models do that like the really big unlock is they can sort of be a kind of co-pilot for you as you're writing to bring all of your notes to bear on your writing all at once, every time you, you touch your keyboard. And I think that's, that's actually like the the key thing because when you're, when you're writing stuff, when I, you know, for example, I, I often like I'll write down a, a quote or an idea, and th- the reason I wanted I want to write all that stuff down is because as I'm writing, like I'm I write essays or blog posts, like I want to be able to use that in the things that I produce. And one of the one of the cool things about large language models is as I'm writing, it might read what I'm writing and suggest a quote from a book that like I read a long time ago and took took notes on, and just plunk that note like right at the end of my cursor and tell me like, hey, do you want to like do you want to use this or not? And it's pretty easy for me to be like, no, 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 that doesn't fit what I'm writing about. But it's also like a pretty magical moment if it does fit. And I wouldn't have thought of it before. And we already have this type of experience for for uh, programming. So GitHub Copilot, for example, is like doing this already for, for code samples. And it's like tremendously valuable. Like I, I wouldn't want to program without it. And I think something similar is coming for all the personal notes and personal knowledge that we're taking where, you know, as you're writing, it's just finding exactly like pieces of information that you've, that you've saved that are relevant and then transforming it into a form that would work for the context that you're, you're putting it into. I think that's a really key thing is like we've had for a long time now, we've had pieces of software that as you're writing, maybe it can like suggest here four notes that are relevant to you on the, on the sidebar or whatever. I don't think that works very well. And the reason is because it's very expensive cognitively and in terms of time for as I'm writing for me to like see the, see those notes pop up and then go click them and be like, Oh, is this relevant? And if so, why? 
Like that just, that's just not, it's not something I want to do like in context of, of writing. It's actually, I think a distraction and it's very expensive, but for these technologies, what these technologies enable you to do is instead of like being like, Hey, here's a note that you can go read. It's like, no, no, no. Here's the next piece of text you want to write using the notes that you've already taken. And I think that is like the big unlock that's incredibly valuable. Yeah, I can see so many ways this could pull. And what's interesting is everybody has different styles of work, right? So one one solution isn't going to fit everybody. For instance, and I was telling my own, you know, ash and trash method of organizing information. I forgot to mention the main one, which is Gmail, right? I've got 22 email accounts that get consolidated into my main Gmail account. I just checked there's 141,000 messages in my inbox. And, you know, truthfully, the most common way I find something is just search Gmail. And it sort of works, but I'm just trying to find something this morning. I just couldn't, I know it's in there. I just couldn't find it. Couldn't find the right query. And there's just so, unfortunately, this is now the particular problem I was asking the question about was there's so many near misses that it it was just impossible. And so as you were talking, I was thinking out loud, what would be cool for me would be for it to have all my emails, right? And all my notes, all my publications, all my social media things. Because one of the things I all fairly often do is I, I will have gotten some clever thing I said on Twitter or something. And when I want, when I want to write something, I want to go find it and steal that, that in the moment, perfect right. sentence that I created on Twitter. And yeah. I'd love to you know, have two screens, one that I'm writing on the second screen that's navigating in some kind of semantic space. And I don't want to actually see the raw notes, as you say, that's overload, but I would love it to, to have to sense that from what I've written so far, what are some of the closest nodes in latent semantic space that are relevant and, and with a description, say a two sentence description, and yeah. then you'd be able to click into it and then it would recursively break down into subspaces with labels when you're trying to, when you're just kind of struck like that, something like totally. that for me would be very, I mean, I would pay hundred bucks a month. No questions asked. I'd probably pay a thousand dollars a month for that. Right. And I think that would be incredibly cool. Yeah. And it, it strikes me, we got to be within striking distance of that now. It's very close. You could, you could spend a couple weekends and like have something that is sort of, sort of useful in that way. It, it's not, it wouldn't be that hard to build. Yeah. And, you know, I'll give an example of something somebody did for me that uses some of the, just all, I mean, again, he did it in a few hours. is amazing. A guy named uh, Stephen Reed, and this is at Stephen Reed, R-E-I, it's Stephen with P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-R-E-I-D.net slash K slash Jim. He took uh, all the transcripts from this podcast and he ran it through some scheme of finding topics. I think he came up with like 125, something like that. He then went and created a knowledge graph connecting all the episodes mm. through the nodes of topics. But this is where it gets to you know, generative AI to make it much more valuable. For each of the one or two word topics that he discovered, he had ChatGPT write a description of that topic. And these are mini essays. These are like three or four paragraphs on each one. That's cool. It's really amazing. So you're clicking through this thing. Okay, well, you know, what is stochastic annealing, right? Or, you know, what is, you know, complexity yeah. science or what is game B even? Mm. And it was amazing. And he told me, I asked him how he did it. He said, yeah, he wrote a template and did some just very simple, fully automated things that then got 
including a prime, right? And got ChatGPT to write definitions. And he said, or uh, GPT-3, it was actually through the API. And he said uh, that of the hundred and some essays that it generated, he only had to fix like three of them. It was it was amazing, right? And this That's is incredible. Guy, and the guy's not even that much of a techie. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a techie, but he's not like yeah. a, an AI guy. He's a, yeah. like a, a Ruby guy. He's a good, very talented Ruby guy. And so he was able to kind of glue wear this stuff together in just a remarkably short period of time. It's really been fun to play with. And so, you know, and this is just, again, like PCs, more or less amateurs are able to produce yeah. these amazing results. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't around, I wasn't around for the first PC wave, but the first wave that I remember that I can kind of compare it to is mobile. When I was in um, middle school and high school, I started I started like programming mobile apps. Like even before the iPhone came out, like I was programming apps for BlackBerry, and that was super cool because like no one had really thought of doing software for phones because but until like really BlackBerry started to get popular, phones weren't advanced enough to like make software worth it, or at least from third party developers. But BlackBerry started and, you know, there were a couple other ones. I think Nokia and, and a couple other ones ha- had like third-party developer programs. And so you started to be able to create these cool little apps. And there was so much low-hanging fruit because no one had ever done it before. And then the iPhone came out and it was like just, it was like an explosion overnight. Like, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but just like everyone was making an app. Everyone had an app. Everyone wanted to make one. And, and you could, like you could just spend a couple weekends and have a really cool app business that, that did something useful for people. And over time, those ecosystems, ecosystems have got a lot, gotten a lot more mature and it's a little harder to do something interesting in a weekend with an app because like all the low hanging fruit has been picked. But I think generative AI is this sort of new frontier where, yeah, it's, it's possible again. Like things are exciting again. You can tinker and build stuff. And, um, and that's, that's just really fun. Yeah, the other Cambrian explosion I remembered was when the graphic browser first came out, right? The particularly the the Netscape browser, particularly yeah. Mark Andreessen's browser that he wrote as a graduate student at the University of Illinois. And yeah. before that, you know, the web existed, but it was kind of this text thing, right? It was it was links, right? Yeah. And then you know he wrote this quite nice graphic representation of HTML and what people were were able to figure out how to do with HTML relatively rapidly were totally amazing, way beyond what HTML was designed for. I always, I still shake my head that the whole world's built on HTTP and HTML, two of the worst protocols ever designed by human beings. <laughs> and yet, but very, very quickly things took off. And one of the things was the brilliance of Mark adding to the browser show source, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you could in those days, just even getting a static page up to do from scratch was pretty hard. You found one you like, show source, cut and paste, change the words, <laughs> change the colors. Oh, I got my own page. Great. Right. And it was kind of uh, very, very viral, very, very quickly as the That's funny. combination of HTTP, HTML suddenly was transformed by the show source capacity yeah. in Andreessen's browser. I love that. You know, I, I hadn't thought of that as being a, uh, a design decision, but it's obviously obviously a decision someone had to make. And I think, I think it's brilliant. Like it, it makes the web what it is, you know? I don't think that there's, there isn't necessarily an equivalent here because I think a lot of people think of their prompts as being proprietary, but it would be interesting to, a lot of people like to share prompts, so I think it'd be interesting to think about what the what the equivalent kind of um, functionality would be in this in this ecosystem. But yeah, I think you're right, and that's such a cool anecdote. Yeah, it really is. And the, now, just talking about that, it, 
you know, uh, one of the foundations of evolutionary theory that whenever there's a top predator, you've just opened a niche for someone to eat that top predator. And that niche often doesn't get filled for quite a while. I mean, filled the niche to eat a grizzly bear, well, it may never get filled, but there's a <laughs> theoretical niche now for something to eat grizzly bears. And I was just thinking, as you were saying that, that uh, prompts people keep them proprietary. Well, obviously there's going to be a meta tool for creating prompts for you. I, I think that I think that there's a lot to be done here with not just prompts, but what I would probably call just like data pipelines in general. It's like you start with a you start with a bunch of text, and then you can you want to go step by step to splitting the text up and transforming it with a prompt, and then transforming it again with another prompt, and like finally having your output. Right now, a lot of that's being done in code, but I think a lot of these these sorts of GPT-3 tasks are very are very similar. It's like, how do you take a bunch of text and then get an answer or an output that you want from it? And I think there's a, there's a lot of room for a more visual kind of almost like Notion or no-code type, type way to, to look at that and see the outputs and explore the space of outputs that you can possibly have. And yeah, I think there, I think there are going to be tools for, for making that uh, more accessible and then sharing your results better. So I'm, I'm very excited for that. Yeah, and uh, you you mentioned a tool in passing that I had just stumbled across on Twitter a couple of weeks ago and looked at their GitHub page, but haven't actually tried it out. And that was Langchain. Uh, mm. Do you have any ex hands-on experience with Langchain? I do. I have less experience than some of the other stuff, but I think Langchain is really interesting. And the the general gist of it is current large language model APIs are sort of built for one-off calls. So you like take some text and you send it to OpenAI and then you get it back. But really often what you want to do is you want to do a bunch of different LLM or other type of model um, operations in succession. And so what Langchain does is it allows you to create what's called a chain where you start with, you know, a bunch of text and then you can define a chain of prompts and other functions that like will take your text, maybe it reformats it and sends it to OpenAI, takes the result and then sends it back to OpenAI with a new prompt and then takes the result and does and you know searches the web and then puts it sends it back to OpenAI like all that kind of stuff it it changes things together so you can create much richer LLM applications with less coding that sounds like the bomb. I think I'm going to build the rut chatbot with that just so like it, and it's it's a python library, right? Yeah, it is. Good, good. Learn another goddamn language, right? <laughs> my fingers know Python fairly decently now. It's not my top <laughs> language, but I can I can get shit done in Python. And you know, if I had nice. learned some goddamn new language, I'd go, oh, I'm not sure enough about that. All right, well, this has been very cool. So maybe this will be our last vignette before we wrap up here. You mentioned a VC. I'm not sure I know how to pronounce his name. Yohei Nakahima, maybe? Something like that? Yohei, yeah. Yohei Nakahima, and you laid out a whole list of things that he has used these kinds of tools to do, and that, that he's apparently a guy famous for not wanting to waste his time on repetitive bullshit. So he's, <laughs> he's willing to invest in automating stuff. Maybe you could just sort of rattle off relatively quickly some of the things that he has done. Yeah, he's a cool, he's a cool guy. Yeah, he, he, as you said, he's a venture capitalist, and I sometimes for a chain of thought, I do interviews with people that, that are doing cool stuff in, in AI, and yeah, he's... He's just someone who hates repetitive tasks, and he's he's been trying to use large language models to eliminate as many repetitive tasks from his day as possible. So, one of his first ones is it's called he calls it Mini Yohei, and it's basically like a chatbot that replicates him and what he knows. 
so that founders in his portfolio can ask questions and then it will respond. And it sort of eliminates, I think, some of the more repetitive questions that VCs might get. But one of the interesting things is he's sort of, when it responds, it loops him in and he can he can follow up. And then he can also mark which of its responses are better and which of its responses are worse. So over time, it gets better, which I think is, is pretty cool. Another one that he has that I actually think is super useful and I really want is he has a bot running on his email where it summarizes all the email interactions he has with people. So if he's about to go into a meeting with someone, he can pull up a, doss- a dossier that's like, here's every email that you've, every email conversation you've had summarized. And here's like the latest thing that you talked about last time you were talking to this person, which I think is like incredibly useful. And then he has a bunch of other, a bunch of other ones. He has a tool that like summarizes tech name and sends, sends him a digest every day. So you just have to, read, have to read tech name. He has the same thing for his, his kid's school. So he has a bot that reads all of the emails from his kids, his kids schools. And then it's, it, creates a searchable interface for him to see like, oh yeah, like when was that? When's that event? Or like, what do I have to do by this date? And like, you can just search it and it'll just tell him the answer, which I think is, is quite cool. So lots and lots of different applications for this technology to, to save little bits of time during the day. Yeah. I mean, I can again, see how that would be so good. I mean, the other thing I do, I probably do 15 or 20 zoom calls a week. Right. And you can now hook them up to Otter and get transcripts made. Or yeah. actually, I think actually is zoom actually doing transcripts. I don't know. Anyway, I would love to have the, all those transcripts available and then link to the emails with the people and coming soon. I mean, God damn. Come on guys. Come on. Entrepreneurs <laughs> out there do this stuff. Right. You know, I'm, kind of too set in my ways, too old, too rich, too lazy to go chase these things myself. But come on, you got young guys, go out there and do this stuff. This is a wide open frontier that's yeah. that's really just opened up here in the last year or so. And these examples that we've talked about are I mean, these are really useful things. I agree. I agree. I think it's I think it's super exciting. It's it's a fun time for anyone that likes to tinker to build stuff to play. And it's still really early. So there's tons and tons and tons of opportunity. It uh, just requires like energy and excitement and, and a little bit of programming knowledge. Yep. Well, I want to thank Dan Shipper for a really wonderful conversation here today, which I think brings this idea to life that this, the, this stuff is for real. There are actual real things you can do with it right now that aren't even all that hard. And that's, you know, like these other Cambrian explosions, PCs, then PC software, then, you know, websites, mobile apps. Now there'll be another Cambrian explosion and somebody out there listening to Jim Rutt show is going to build the next unicorn. So, get to work, folks. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks very much for the work you do, because I'm actually going to steal some of it as I try to figure out how to do the Jim Rutt chat. And then, and just for your enthusiasm and your good common sense. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.